Hello, I'm Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest is Corey Ellison, a true operatic polymath. She writes wonderful supertitles that help us all understand opera better, no matter what language it's being sung in on the stage, an eloquent writer of program notes and essays on the world of opera, and probably one of the most elusive and yet important parts of operatic creation, Corey is one of the foremost dramaturgs in our profession today. That conscience for the author, that conscience for the audience, that advocate for the patron, and all-round guru to make sure opera toes the line. My guest is Corey Ellison, one of the most essential people in the world of opera today, in part because she not only writes some of the most elegant supertitles that allow opera lovers to enjoy opera in English, no matter what language is coming off of the stage. She is a dramaturg, which we'll talk about in a little while. Uh, Corey is also someone who writes some of the most elegant prose about opera and is invaluable to composers as they begin the journey to making an opera complete for the stage. We're very fortunate to have Corey with us these days in Cincinnati as she is working as we speak on a new opera by Rufus Wainwright, his second opera, Hadrian, based on the famous uh, fictional biographical novel, as well as this summer, Corey helps us with our first ever production of Monteverdi's opera, The Coronation of Popea. So all the way from opera that is not even yet finished in the second decade of the 21st century to an opera that was finished in 1643. Y- yet, they're both about ancient Rome. So in my in my research, I'm sort of doubling up on, <laughs> on my ancient Roman research. It's kind of interesting to be in the same world for a brand new opera and one of the oldest operas Still in the exists. repertoire, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Corey, how did you come to opera in the first place? What, what was, when did the bug bite you and what kind of bug was it? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, it was a, a, a very early bug. I was seven years old. Yeah, and um, I, I happened upon, quite by chance, uh, a little trove of recordings that had belonged to my uh, late grandfather and uh, played them, and they turned out to be a couple of Mario Lanza singles. And I'd never heard anything quite like that kind of singing before, and my little seven-year-old self was just knocked out. I just, and really from that moment, I just knew somehow or another this was going to be my life. No kidding. And I just really, uh, in one way or another, followed my bliss uh, made a lot of strange decisions that that made people uh, wag their heads over the course of my life to pursue this. Uh, A lot of twists and turns on the path, but it was something that just absolutely captured my imagination and my passion at such an early age, and and I've never looked back. It's it's brought me the most uh, amazing, rewarding life. And you have always been in that category of advocate for opera. You weren't a performer yourself. Were I you? was actually. Ah. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, my my training, um, I had an uh, undergraduate degree um, in theater arts with a minor in music from Hofstra University on Long Island, which uh, was renowned for its theater department, particularly Shakespeare. And from there, I went to Manhattan School of Music as a voice major 
And I did my vocal apprenticeships and, and all of that and um, some regional opera work and New York gigging and all that kind of thing. And uh, I, I really, when I, was, I began to be out there in the profession, I realized, first of all, that it seemed to me my, my personality was different from a lot of the my fellow singers who really were um, going to get somewhere. And what they was, were willing to step over dead bodies <laughs> in order well, to I get the next gig. I don't know if it's exactly that. But what I noticed is that they had a singleness of focus on their singing that it, it became clear to me I could never have. I was the person who... When I, when I was assigned a new vocal piece, the first place I'd go was the library <laughs> to translate it and find recordings of it and read about the composer and so on and so forth. And at a certain point, I just picked up the clue phone and, and thought, you know, this is telling me something. Also, um, I just uh, I realized, too, that although I was getting work and I'm sure I could have continued to have a good career, probably in regional opera. I was I would be sort of the seventh mezzo soprano from the left and a lyric mezzo at that. And uh, I realized I began to realize as I started to do other things within the profession that I could probably have a greater impact on the profession um, doing other things because I did have vision and ideas about, how opera should be and and so on. And, and so I would say this path chose me as much as I chose it. And I never completely abandoned singing. I still do it a little bit. And I still feel that um, I come at this profession uh, from the perspective of a performer. I, I feel that that's where my empathy really lies for, for creators and recreators and I think that's been a real advantage for me in my work with uh, creatives and, and performers and so on, is that I so um, empathize with them. I so come from the same place that they do. And so when you decided to start branching out from uh, from having singing being the focus to other things, mm -hmm. did they simply present themselves or did you set yourself a path? Well, um, I... That's that's a really good question. Opportunities just seemed to pop up for me. I've had a tremendous uh, a tremendous amount of good luck in my career. I mean, I've worked very hard, and I think I do have certain gifts. And by gifts, I mean just just that things that I had nothing to do with getting, but that I I was presented with, and I tried to really make the best of. And, um, you know, for instance, just when I started to think, well, maybe I'd like to try teaching and lecturing, these opportunities started to present themselves. Um, just as I thought, you know, I had always written uh, journalism throughout school and program notes for the school string quartet and so on. And um, and those opportunities started to present themselves. I I worked as a, a proofreader down in the basement of Lincoln Center right when I got out of school. And um, 
the wonderful man who was running uh, Stage Bill at that time actually gave me the opportunity to write program notes for Marilyn Horn's recital at the Met. <laughs> so that wow. was, yeah, you know. So Nothing like starting of, at the top. Right, right. And then uh, with super titles, a really amazing thing happened. I was um, working as an associate chorister at New York City Opera. And uh, about the time when they started using supertitles, of course, it was Latfi Mansouri in Canada and Beverly Sills at New York City Opera who pioneered the use of supertitles. And um, I happened to be in the first supertitled show at New York City Opera, which was Centrion. And I thought it was a great thing. I thought it was really great. So I marched myself into Beverly Sills' office, and that's what sh she was like. She, her door was always open. She was this tremendously approachable person who knew everybody in the company from the janitors on up to the board members and everybody in between. She knew everybody's name. She knew everybody's business, you know, and it was great. So I... I went to her and, and uh, I told her I thought I would like to do super titles. And, you know, here I was, this kid in the chorus. I, I think I had just gotten out of school. And she said, well, okay, dear, what, what are your qualifications? So I told her, well, I had languages. I told her which ones. And I said, well, I know stagecraft. I've, I've uh, studied, you know, my undergraduate studies were in theater arts. And of course, I'm a musician. So I sort of felt like, well, the combination of all of these things might uh, make me a good candidate. And she was scribbling all these things down, and she said, well, dear, thanks for coming in. You know, I'll keep it in mind. And I walked out of there and thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained, um, because they, they were all set with, with somebody in those first couple of years. Well, about a year later, my phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and it was Beverly Sills. And she said, oh, hi, dear. We're doing Love for Three Oranges, which is originally in Russian, but um, it, it had its world premiere in French. And we're going to do it in French. But I would like somebody doing the supertitles who has both languages. And so I thought of you. Would you like to do it? Would I like to do <laughs> Well, so she, I don't know why on earth she thought to give such an opportunity to this kid <laughs> in the chorus. Um, but God bless her, you know, she did. And that was a, a really huge um, part of my career that started that, that way. Supertitles changed opera mm -hmm. all over the world mm -hmm. um, because I've been to opera houses in Italy and in France where the supertitles of operas in French and Italian are on the proscenium in French and Italian. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find fascinating is the choices. Mm -hmm. Could you spend a minute talking about how you choose to translate and how you translate something so that you retain the essence of what is being said in the original language, but also convey what it means in the translated language. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you get about, what, how many characters? It's, it's shorter than yeah, a tweet. Right. It, it's, about, it's usually uh, you know, somewhere between 40 and 45 characters per line, and it's usually two lines. Right. And so that's half a tweet. <laughs> yes, right, these days, right? Uh, it's, it's even less than half a tweet yeah. nowadays. I think it's up to 140 or something. I think is so. It? So how um, do you make those choices? 
Oh, gosh. Well, it is, you know, it's an absolutely fascinating craft. And for me, it's a, it's very challenging, but it's a lot of fun because I'm a great fan of word puzzles. <laughs> so it's kind of like that because it's one of those things, it's almost like a an acrostic that has to work out in so many ways. You have those technical specs that you were just talking about, the number of lines, the number of characters. And then there are so many considerations. Um, for instance, uh, as you were saying, you do want to get the essence of the original language and of the voices of the individual characters, which very often are quite different. For instance, one of the operas I've titled for the Met has been Rosenkavalier. And that is an opera in which uh, it's particularly notable that many of the characters speak in all different sorts of dialects. You have the two Italians who sort of speak broken German, and you've got um, Octavian playing Mariandel, the maid, who speaks in very low, low-class Viennese. And then you have Baron Ox, who has a very uh, colorful way of speaking, and you have the more upper-class way that the Marshallin uh, expresses herself. So that's one thing. To and ch- to yeah. take another step, uh-huh. the, an audience seeing it in Vienna, let's say, mm-hmm. although it was premiered in Dresden, but an audience seeing it in Vienna, hearing it in their own language, mm-hmm. would understand instantly these really subtle differences mm-hmm. in class and dialect mm-hmm. and accent. Yep. So how do you get that into English? Well, what I tried to do was sort of find e- equivalents uh, that English speakers would understand. You know, um, so I rendered the Italian accents as Italian accents because we know that certainly. And, you know, I rendered the, you know, the Mariandel low class speech as, you know, ain't and things like that because it it is quite similar. Um, And then, you know, a more poetic way of speaking for the Marshallin's monologue where she's, Um, you know, uh, reflecting on the ravages of time and so on. So that's one thing, uh, to really toe that line between serving the audience um, and uh, and capturing the original sense of things. Another thing that I'm very mindful of is uh, digestibility of the titles. You Uh. want to create the experience that after the first few titles, the audience is just understanding what they're hearing. You know, so you want them to forget that, you know, every couple of seconds they're looking up at the proscenium or down at the seat back in front of them, and they get into that rhythm, and you want something that is so easily digestible to the eye that there's no word that that they'll stumble over and stop them and take them away from the stage action. And that's that's really one thing uh, that you think about. Another thing that you think about is, for instance, uh, in something like I'm thinking of La Clemenza di Tito, which I also did for the Met, um, because it's an opera seria, an old-fashioned libretto that was updated for Mozart by a contemporary of his, Mazzola, it's, uh, you know, the language in it is very antiquated, and there are things which nowadays, if translated literally, would kind of be a laugh riot. <laughs> unintentionally. Yes, unintentionally. It's not, you know, it is, La Clemenza di Tito is not a funny opera. It doesn't have any light moments. Um, More jokes than Parsifal, right? That's right. <laughs> what is the, the saying? You know, uh, not as funny as Parsifal, uh, longer than and not as funny as Parsifal. 
But no. Uh, but so Tito, so you have to really take care that, um, you know, nothing that you write is funny is going to get a laugh from the audience. And you really have to try to get a sense of that. Speaking of laughs, another part of the craft is the well-timed laugh. Oh, yes. You know, the, and that's for me one of the greatest joys of supertitles. And I'm sure it is for performers mm-hmm. when they're doing a, a comedy, mm-hmm. let's say Figaro of Mozart. Finally, you hear laughs when the funny stuff actually happens. That's right. But that in itself is is a real uh important part of the craft because cueing comes into the mix. Cueing is an essential part of uh, creating titles. It's not only just the translating and the uh, you know, literary rendition, but it's the, the cueing, and that's where your musical chops come in. And I think it's really essential for supertitle writers, writers to be musicians. Well, wasn't there a famous story in the early days, and if it isn't true, it's a good story, <laughs> as the Italians say, uh, of Eva Marton oh, yes. in Tosca in Houston, I think. Mm-hmm. And it comes time for when she's admonishing her lover, Cavaradossi, uh, to uh, you know, continue doing his painting of the Madonna, uh, but she says "mafaglio kineri," right. meaning give her eyes the same color as mine, right. which are black. black. Right. Right. But it literally, it, it's you give her give her black eyes. Right. And, which... of, <laughs> and of course, that title comes up on the screen, and the audience bursts into laughter. Right. Ava Marton stops the performance right. or the rehearsal and says, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And stomp, stomps yeah. off the stage. That so, is true, that, by the way. That is a true story. So how, um, do you render, how do you render a line like that that doesn't get an inadvertent well, laugh? I actually, you know, I have translated Tosca. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, I said something like uh, paint her eyes dark, you know, paint her with dark eyes or something like that. So um, in other words, it's not... Exactly, translation word. For, it's never translation word for word. No, really, because is it? the thing is, if you translate French or Italian or German or Russian word for word, you're going to end up with you know bad English syntax and grammar. Right. You right. know. So so you have to render it in English first of all. So what happens when you come across the the, the occasional libretto? I'm thinking particularly, let's say, of the libretto of the Marriage of Figaro or Così Fan Tutte, or Don Giovanni, the mm-hmm. three great Lorenzo da Ponte operas, yeah. which are poetry in of themselves. Mm-hmm. And they are, gr- it's, they are great poetry crafted into that, that little cauldron that makes it good for singing. Do you feel any pangs when you have to, as it were, dilute something that is, you know, a perfect... Uh, I don't know, not a, not a sonnet, but perfect poetically. What do you do? Yeah, that's, you know, that's if you're sensitive to literature, which, which I believe that I am, it is, you know, there is always something sacrificed, mm-hmm. but you have to sort of choose what your priorities are going to be. And and for super titles, it's, uh, you know, obviously, if I were writing a book where I was producing a new English translation of Da Ponte's Libretti, I would do very different kind of translation than I would do when I did uh, Don Giovanni or Così for the Met. Um, you know, they're just different priorities and different specs and so on. And it's it's definitely more painful um, with things like that than it is for, I don't know, something like Romeo et Juliet, which, you know, it has its patches of uh, verbatim translated Shakespeare, but mostly it's sort of 19th century, you know, French libretto hack kinds of verses, which 
you know, they knew how to construct a libretto, I'm telling you. They were master craftsmen. But as literature, that's not what it's about. Exactly. It's about but, carrying the yeah. musical thought mm-hmm. to the audience yeah. via the text, as it right. were. Right, exactly, exactly. And then another example is uh, Eugene Onegin, which I've, I've also done for the Met. And that, um, it's, it's pretty much verbatim Pushkin. And actually, it's the easiest translation I think I've ever done because there was... I don't think I've ever done a translation where there was so little um, sort of tweaking and maneuvering of the literal translation because Pushkin is so clear and um, there's just there's just a simplicity and clarity to his diction that is really extraordinary. However, um, you know, it's great literature and you're you're always conscious of that when you're dealing with it. Let's play a little game. I don't mean to put you on the spot. We, we can cut it if it doesn't work. <laughs> but let's take the first couple of lines of a very famous aria that I think I can remember in the original and mm-hmm. translate them as you would for a super title. Okay. So it's Rodolfo's aria from uh-huh. Act One of La, Tra- La-, La Boheme. Mm-hmm. Um, che gelida manina mm-hmm. se la lasci riscaldar, mm-hmm. cercar che giova al buio non si trova. Mm-hmm. So how would that, which is beautiful and poetic and, yeah. and rhyming, how does that how does that turn into English? Que jelly da manina. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I haven't actually uh, believe it or not, I haven't translated haven't bohem. bohem. No, okay. it's just one of those things. Um, well, I would probably say uh, how you know how cold you know your hand is so cold. Or uh, I mean, the first thing I do when I when I'm translating to do super titles is I will do a literal translation. I'll uh-huh. start from there. Well, the first thing I do is cue the score to the music. So let's explain this to our listeners Uh a little bit. In other words, the music is going on, let's say if it's just an aria, Mm -hmm. it's going on in linear fashion. Word follows word, Mm -hmm. note follows note, and the the sense is conveyed over the sense of a phrase, Mm -hmm. over the sense of several phrases, Um, but there's a story to be told. Mm -hmm. So... uh, And it has to happen, as you say, synchronous with Mm -hmm. the musical gesture, Comedy or not, mm-hmm. so it makes a certain amount of sense with the gestures that are going on stage mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So you you lay it out. Um, the first thing, line that, it up yeah, with the, music. the first thing I'll do is just go through the score, uh, listen through it with a recording or play through it or something, and just uh, sketch in where the cues should come because that is all based on the music right. before you even get to the words, um, and then go through the libretto and make a literal translation, kind of sketch that into the score. Bad syntax and all, translating things. Yeah, into yeah sure. you know, more or less. And then um, try to craft it into the kind of English we need, which is um, according to the things that, that we've been talking about. You know, the And it's different English than, let's say, sung English mm-hmm. because oh yeah so I'm I've a, done singing translations too and right. those are very different because, because in those what you have to do I think is um, as much as you can possibly do duplicate the, the vowel sounds in the original language because that's where the music is mm-hmm. and you will find the, the more the more closely you can follow the original vowel sounds the less like a translation it's going to sound that's fascinating because I remember the old Ruth and Thomas Martin translation of the aria we just quoted mm. so que jelly da manina se la scaldar comes out your, your tiny, tiny hand is frozen, frozen. let me warm, warm it, it with my own right. which you yes. can sing uh-huh 
But if you look at that on a super title, you'll burst into giggles. Yeah. And so it's you also, have to change you have it. To change doesn't it doesn't sound, again, the, the vowels don't line up. Uh-huh. And, and that's very hard. It's very, very hard to do. That singing translations are even harder than supertitles, but I enjoy those too because, again, they're like word games, you know. So a part of your life is helping audiences understand in their own language the not just the essence but as much of the nuance of mm-hmm. what is being conveyed by the text on stage. Mm-hmm. You're the ultimate uh, helper to audience comprehension. And sometimes, I'm sorry to interrupt, but sometimes, I mean, I've had the experience of actually um, working on a, I won't say what it was, but a poorly directed production um, where I felt uh, I could help the weak storytelling through the supertitles. And so, I mean, in that way, I provided dramaturgy through the supertitles. I was very mindful of that because I felt... We really needed to serve the audience that way. You make a perfect segue to another aspect of your life, (laughs) which is a a very poorly understood word among opera goers and maybe even among playgoers where this profession, this part of our profession started, which is dramaturg. (laughs) Tell us what a dramaturg is and what a dramaturg does. It's not some sort of very rare um, Arabian insect, <laughs> is <Right>. it? <laughs> no, I mean, I think a lot of people think it might be. <laughs> I know that's that's the question, Evans, that if I had a nickel for every time I got asked that question, what's a dramaturg? Sometimes what the hell is a dramaturg? I mean, I don't think I have a nickel in my pocket, but let's pretend I, pretend <laughs> okay. I just gave you one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, you know, that's a, li- a little different because uh, in different cases because in a way the dramaturg's job sort of uh, molds itself around the needs of the company or the production uh, or the piece that you're working on um, and uh, the skill sets of the particular dramaturg, um, you know, who's working on it. But in general, I'd say uh, a company dramaturg, which I've been twice um, for New York City Opera and for Glyndebourne, um, is... One of my great uh, idols was Nicholas John, who was the longtime dramaturg at the English National Opera during the glory days of David Pountney uh, and Mark Elder running the company. And uh, Nick John used to say the dramaturg is the conscience of the opera house. And that sounds a little lofty and... Um, Rather English. A li- yes, yeah. But but in a sense, um, it's, you know, the dramaturg... Uh, in the pie in the sky terms, in, in the ivory tower terms, is a person who uh, recognizes and respects and and really kind of reveres the integrity of the art form and of the pieces and of the company and its heritage, and tries to um, uphold that, uh, whether it's in, um, in in producing a new production. Of a, of a repertory piece, uh, fashioning, helping to fashion a new opera, um, helping the various departments of development and marketing and uh, media craft messaging for the for the internal and for the public, that everyone in the company is on the same page and we all really know what it is where... Um, publicizing or raising money for. Two, of course, education. Uh, it involves 
often curating um, adult educational programming and also, uh, importantly, um, the publications, curating publications. So when it comes to being uh, brought in to help develop a new opera, what are some of your tasks for a piece that no one has heard, it's never been recorded, mm-hmm. hasn't been produced yet, may not even be finished? Mm-hmm. What's what's your skill set and task set? Well, that's, uh, you know, uh, it, it depends somewhat on what stage you're brought in on. But usually um, what happens is that a dramaturg is sort of present at the conception of a piece in a way. It's usually the general director will, um, you know, commission a composer and sometimes also a librettist or sometimes will commission a librettist in um, you know, accept a librettist who the composer wants to work with or so on. Um, and then the first thing that really has to happen uh, is they find their subject matter. Sometimes a dramaturg can help with that. I'm working on a project now where I'm in that stage with the company and the composer of actually trying to find subject matter. Hmm. Then once the subject matter is settled upon, uh, you sit with the composer and, and librettist and uh, craft a, a sort of a skeleton, a story arc. Now, if you're adapting it from an existing property, a novel or a film or a play, you figure out the way to really transform one medium into another, which is you know easier said than done. And of course, if you're crafting an original story, then you have to just from, you know, from scratch kind of figure out, what's the story you're going to tell, how to tell it in, in a dramatic way. And then, you know, you finally craft this thing that we call a treatment, which is a sort of, you know, kind of a very detailed synopsis. And at that point, you usually meet with the general director and, uh, and go through things and tweak and then once everyone is, is happy with the treatment, then the librettist takes the ball and runs with it and writes a first draft. Then everybody gets together again with the dramaturg and, and uh, the general director, and you go over the first draft of the libretto. And again, there's, there's input from everybody. The composer may say, well, you know, I really feel there's an aria here uh, you know that that should be here that's not here or the dramaturg may say well you know that point is not exactly clear that m- this character's motivation isn't exactly clear where were you when verdi was writing il trovatore right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah really i know <laughs> it is the most beautiful music in the whole world but and what a the mess. mess of a story. You know, the thing about Trovatore, I always call it, when I work with composers, I, I teach composers and librettists, and, you know, whenever, the thing about uh, Trovatore is um, that nothing happens on stage. It's all people running on stage saying, they're burning your mother at the stake, or something like that, and and somebody has to rush off stage and tend to that situation. Or this is what happened 15 years ago, you know. Um, and so I always talk about with my uh, librettists and composers that I teach, you know, oh, this this has trovatory disease. You know, no, you have to, <laughs> we have to see this happen. We can't just be hearing about it, you know. That's fascinating. So in a new work, uh-huh. you are this combination of uh, 
advisor, mm-hmm. uh, OBGYN, as it were, yeah. as well as conscience. I think it's a mm-hmm. very, very good word. Very you're, much. You're that person who is not actually creating the notes or mm-hmm. the words, but you're you're the you're the the little birdie on the shoulder that says, "Are you sure you want to do it that way?" Yeah. Am I? Well, you, you ask. I ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, oh, what what does this mean? Or like, what are you what are you trying? You know. And I, I hear what they have to say, and if if they tell me something and I, and it's not clear, I mean that what they say isn't evident in what they've mm-hmm. written, then I will point that out. I'll say, well, that's great. It's not exactly coming across, you know. So you're in some ways uh, a real audience member advocate. I'm. I, I'm. Oh, f- absolutely. Yeah. That's I, a huge part of the dramaturg's job. Because I'm very fond of going to a new opera, and I go to maybe ten or fifteen of them every year. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten into the habit of I'll get material on it, you know, whatever sent to me by the producing company, and I will studiously not read it. I want to go into a new opera performance. Mm-hmm only knowing what any average patron would know who's bought a ticket. And yes, I'll read the synopsis before the lights go down, Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to do the kind of research that I would do were I producing it myself, Mm -hmm. because in part I want to put it to that test. Am I, as a first-time viewer and listener, engaged emotionally by Mm -hmm. it? And I can never, will never forget the night I happened by pure happy accident to go to the very first performance of Silent Night by Kevin Putz and Mark Campbell. And I remember very distinctly within five minutes mm-hmm. of this opera beginning, well, after the big battle scene that begins, it, for which there is no text, thinking, I understand everything about mm-hmm. this show. Yeah. And and I have gone to many a new opera where I have been scratching my head at mm-hmm. the end thinking, I can never produce this opera right. because it is just, it's mm-hmm. too inside itself. It's gotten mm-hmm. too much in love with itself. And where's the audience? Exactly. Oh, I'm I'm so mindful of that all the time. And that's, again, part of what, you know, I, I think a dramaturg has to be an, a very much an advocate for the audience and, and also an advocate for the composer and librettist. I think you really, you never want to tell them what to do, but mm-hmm. you really want to understand so well what it is they're trying to do and just help steer them towards realizing that in their own voice in the clearest possible way um, that they can. You're sort of an amateur psychologist, not amateur, a a highly trained psychologist, because isn't one of the things that uh, typical psychological therapy uses is, I I want you to say to the person you're trying to better communicate with, I thought I heard you say, Mm -hmm. and repeat back. And so this is an iterative process, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to help them find the core of the yeah. idea they're trying to express. Absolutely, absolutely. And also there's, you know, the interpersonal aspect of it too. You know, you're you're always dealing with two personalities, <laughs> two artists. And, you know, sometimes there are conflicts. And one of the skills that a good dramaturg has to have is this sort of art of, of managing conflict. Um, and, and trying to affect uh, consensus. So let's add referee to that list. Of yeah, or marriage <laughs> counselor or whatever. And believe me, I could tell you stories, but I'm not going to on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, it's different with an opera that already exists. And let's get specific for a moment about the opera that uh, for which we've engaged you mm-hmm. for this summer to assist us, which is Monteverdi's The Coronation of Popea, uh, your other ancient <laughs> story right. that you're working on right now. 
we have a mandate because it, this is the 21st century. And if you played every single note of the coronation of Popeye, it would be about the length of a, a Wagner opera, mm-hmm. maybe even longer. Mm-hmm. And um, in order to make that kind of an opera compelling for a modern audience, decisions have to be made. There are some things you simply have to let go. And uh, Gary Weddow, uh, our conductor, and Zach Winokur, our director, and you mm-hmm. have gone through the process of making choices as to what to keep of the original opera in order to com- make the story compelling, not lose any of the hit tunes, as it were. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about making those choices? Oh, well, that's that's also a puzzle. And uh, it's a fascinating process and really difficult because, you know, if you really love a work, it, it's it's sort of difficult to let go of, you know, any one of your children there. Sure. But, um, you know, we have to uh, really find uh, a way of telling the story that, as you say, preserves the best of the music and uh, tells the story clearly. So uh, thing is, in a Venetian opera like Coronation Popea, there's a certain amount of subplot. There's you know, always, they're very complex structures. And often there's a, a prologue with mythological characters, uh, a gods and so on, who are uh, playing with the fates of the mortals in a very frivolous way. And so... Uh, you know, we've decided to do away with that, for instance, and just start the action where the humans come in um, and, and then, you know, streamline some of the subplots and so on so that we're really focusing on the main story. I like to think that if Monteverdi was alive today with this incredible melodic and storytelling gift that he has, that uh, he would probably write a shorter opera. Oh, absolutely. Because he was such a man of the theater. Yeah. I mean, the theatrical instincts of what he does and the comedy and the tragedy and, mm-hmm. the, and the way that he sets the text mm-hmm. is so masterful. It's just that I think we also have to remember that it was at a time when there was no television, there was no radio, right. there was no internet. Mm-hmm. There was nothing else to do. <laughs> so right. four hours in the evening in the theater was a nice time. Exactly. And also people kind of went in and out of the theater and they, they had gambling in the lobby and stuff to eat. And, you know, it was a little bit looser. I mean, Venetian opera. Venice, uh, where uh, the Coronation of Popeye comes from, is really, uh, the, for all intents and purposes, the birthplace of opera as we know it. Now nowadays, because um, it was obviously it was born in Florence about 50 years previously at the turn of, of the um, 17th century. But that was all, you know, it was a bunch of amateurs, noblemen, very educated, who were trying to recreate uh, ancient uh, classical tragedy. And they were doing it for each other in drawing rooms of nobility. But Venice is where, you know, it was this, uh, you know, affluent mercantile republic where it was the first time opera was public entertainment. Anybody who had the money to buy a ticket could. And these opera houses sprang up all over Venice like mushrooms. At one time, there were something like 11 opera houses going all at once. And, you know, it's not a huge city. Um, But but so... uh, Monteverdi and all of the Venetian composers, Cavalli and all of them, very much had their eye on the public. You know, they weren't in an ivory tower creating, 
you know, rarefied things. They were creating stuff that was going to sell tickets. So it was going to have comedy and a slapstick, and it was going to have a vocal display and, you know. Lots uh, of sex. Oh, yeah, lots of yeah, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, definitely. Popeye is a pretty racy story. Um, yeah, and, and that's very different. For instance, uh, Monteverdi's first opera in 1607, his Orfeo, which he wrote um, – uh, for the Duke of Mantua, um, you know, very uh, different affair. Very different. Very uh, sober and and kind of uh, streamlined and based, of course, on mythological characters. Now, this uh, Popeia actually is the one of the very first, if not the first, opera to be based on actual historical characters. And it started a huge fashion in opera that has never since abated to write opera, because before that, it was all mythology. So your work in an existing opera, mm -hmm. let's say a Baroque opera that mm -hmm. needs trimming and, and adjusting, is, again, from the audience's mm -hmm. perspective, to give a great evening in the theater and protecting the composer and librettist mm -hmm. so that the best of their music remains. It's just that they're not in the room to argue with you. Right. <laughs> That's right. the only but, difference. But hopefully, <laughs> in a way, you know, there's someone that does represent their interests. There's, uh, you know, it's incumbent upon a good dramaturg to uh, have done their homework enough to really understand as, uh, in as much as possible what the the milieu of its creation was, what Monteverdi was all about at that stage in his career. It's his last opera. He died the year that, that it premiered. Um, and, and to really, in a way, kind of be his advocate. Uh, so so that's, that's an important part of, of production dramaturgy. Another thing that I might point out about uh, production dramaturgy in Popeye, especially, and in some other operas, is Popeye exists in uh, about 11 different published editions. We're using the Alan Curtis edition from 1989. But the point of me mentioning that is that uh, the original score, uh, it requires so much realization. For instance, the orchestra parts aren't completely realized and assigned to different instruments and so on and so forth. And uh, there's all sorts of different um you know, different uh, versions and cuts and different performance materials and so on. And you have to make a lot of choices um, in how, you know, uh, the, uh, Gary's going to make a lot of choices about how he wants the orchestra to play and the continuo band to play and everything. So it's a little bit more, a, a score of this nature is a little bit more like a map. Oh, that yeah. You have, you have the entire geography spread out in front mm -hmm. of you. You have to s decide how you're going to get yeah. to point A. They're like jazz charts in a way. How fascinating yeah. and how wonderful for performers because oh, yeah. there's a sense of spontaneity about the performance of a Baroque opera that might not be in every performance of La Boheme you see, let's exactly. for, for example. No, there really, there really, really is. You've seen a lot of opera in your yeah. time <laughs> on more than one continent. Do you have a couple of favorites that you go back to? What do you listen to? What opera do you pull off of your shelf, as it were, or out of your memory banks when you're feeling kind of blue and you need to pick me up? Oh, I, Mozart. Mozart is my main man. I mean, even though uh, an opera house dramaturg has to really be open to and, uh, you know, you just you have to love all your children. <laughs> you really do. But my the composer of my heart is Mozart. And maybe if I had to choose one, it would be Così Fantute. 
Why so? Oh, gosh. I mean... It's very adult. I mean, not mean, and not in the sense of racy. It's a very clear-eyed, some would say gimlet-eyed view oh, of yeah. relationships in life. Oh, yes. But it's so... It's like Chekhov in that way. It, it, you know, Mozart doesn't ever condemn anybody, not even Don Giovanni. You know, there are never any real villains. And... Uh, it's because it seems to me there's this great love of humanity in both Mozart and Chekhov. And, um, you know, there, there's something about Cozy that uh, it, it just presents the human condition, the human heart, what it is to be human and in love, um, and the, the all the questions and doubts that that brings up in, in such, in a way that, that, for me, cuts so close to the bone and, you know, it's got these very profound moments and funny moments and just moments of the, the deepest, deepest insight done with, with such a light hand. I'm remembering the trio at the beginning, of the, towards the beginning of the opera oh, when yeah. Don Alfonso and the two ladies are wishing the boys safe journey in which mm-hmm. to in a moment that they think they're going off to war and they may never return. Right. And Mozart creates this wonderful rocking rhythm underneath it. And you're standing sitting out in the audience having such a complicated uh, reaction to this mm-hmm. because you know mm-hmm. that it's fake, that Don yeah. Alfonso is setting this up because really? the boys are off stage changing into their Albanian outfits. Right. And yet the sentiment on stage is so genuine and so pure that it really messes with you. (laughs) It's an opera that never lets you off, lets you, the audience member, off the hook. Especially, that's so true, Evans. That's what a a great observation. And also at the end, it's like I'm always left at the end of that feeling like, what are these people going to do? I mean, (laughs) everything is different um, because of what they've been through. And you know, the curtains comes down and what what's going to happen, you know? And, and of course, people have all different ways of staging the ending, but but it's it's disturbing, you well, know? A, you know, and there's another one that I love, and you probably, since you're such a Mozart fan, I'm always fascinated since next summer, the summer of 2009, we're doing The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, I'm fascinated by that moment in the last act when the Count, after all of his shenanigans, gets caught. Oh, Yeah. And he goes down on one knee and he mm-hmm. sings, Signora, perdon. He asks Don't forgiveness see, yeah. of his wife. Uh-huh. And there's this incredible blossoming of sound and this sort yeah. of halo of forgiveness. And th- it's the moment that stops your heart. And then the cynic in you says, mm-hmm. And tomorrow mm-hmm. it's going to start all over again. There will be another pretty young serving girl who comes to work because, of course, Susanna and Figaro have gotten married. Maybe they've left that Halmadiva <laughs> household and they've gone off to start a family of their own someplace else. Mm-hmm. And another Susanna is going to be coming mm-hmm. there tomorrow and he will do it all over again. Yep. For me, one of the things that's so powerful about these operas and what I think sounds like what motivates you in your love of this music is that it's so real. Yeah. It is so real, and one of the things that we love Mm -hmm. about producing opera is that you get those chances once in a while to work on a piece that makes us stop for a minute and say, wow, that is just so true. Yeah. Even though it's being sung by an opera singer, I've had that experience in my life. Yes. 
Have you been to um, Have you been to a couple of the more uh, modern operas that uh, that have really caught your heart and your mind in the last few years? Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I I work on them, so I'm a little bit prejudiced towards you know. I, Bias I, allowed. I very you know I'm very proud of of certain of the the operas that I've served as dramaturg for, um, you know. Uh, developmental dramaturg in the creative process that we were talking about before. One of them is the the new Hamlet that we premiered at Glyndebourne last summer, written by the Australian composer Brett Dean and Canadian librettist Matthew Jocelyn. Very modernist and spiky, but just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant work. And and it was just based a, on the Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a, a really great experience, and it's a great work that I think is going to really live in the repertory. Similarly, um, uh, Breaking the Waves by Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrick, who was a former student of mine at American Lyric Theater, <laughs> and we're very proud of him. He's gone on to quite a career as a librettist. But uh, I I was dramaturg uh, for that, for Opera Philadelphia, and that's just a wonderful, wonderful it's a work. magnificent work. Another yeah. work, uh, one of my other favorites, is, uh, is called The Long Walk by Jeremy Howard Beck and Stephanie Fleischman, um, both also graduates of American Lyric Theater, where I teach. And uh, it's been, it was premiered by Opera Saratoga and has already been done by a Utah Opera and Pittsburgh Opera. And it, it's, so those are very close to my heart. Also... Um, I am very, very fond of the works of Kaya Sariaho, who is a friend, and I've worked with her, and um, uh, L'Amour de Loin, in particular, her first opera, which I was uh, very honored to work on um, at, at its Met premiere a couple of years ago. I did the super titles for it. So we are in this rather amazing time in our country, and you've been around opera long enough to have participated in and witnessed this, what seems to be an absolute avalanche of new opera and interest in new opera in our country by American composers, outstripping anything that's happening in Mm -hmm. Europe. Uh, I mean, I talk to some of my European colleague friends, and they say, what are you putting in the water in the United (laughs) States? That Every time you turn around, these new operas that are doing well are springing up like mushrooms. What do you think is the reason that we're having such a renaissance of operas that really resonate with the public? Well, that's a, an interesting question, and and it's really, I think uh, there's a lot of pieces to the answer, but it certainly is true. Uh, you know, uh, in the last, I'd say, 15 years, um, the the number of, of new operas and commissions have, have increased exponentially. Um, and I think it has to do, uh, for one thing, with uh, the perception of opera nowadays as a theatrical art form. I think even back when you or I came into it, it was probably through listening to the Met radio broadcasts. Absolutely, yes. And and then when we did go to see an opera, very often it was like a concert in costume, yeah. right? Yeah. People would park and bark. Park and they, bark, right? Mm-hmm. People would stand there. But I think part of, you know, the super titles have, have uh, sort of upped the ante um, of people perceiving it as a dramatic art form. And also all the uh, films and HDs and TV telecasts of operas, uh, people who are new to opera now encounter it as, as pr- first and foremost a theatrical art form. 
So that's one reason. Um, another reason I think is that opera companies in this uh, nation, and I think uh, probably uh, you can relate to this at Cincinnati Opera, uh, you're realizing that um, to really cultivate the audiences of the future, it's necessary to give voice to uh, the voices of our present. You know, uh, American composers and librettists writing about things that are of concern to Americans. And of course, that is not in any uh, way monolithic. There is such a plethora of different kinds of subject matter, musical style, theatrical style, yet there's a tremendous burst of creativity. And uh, much to their credit, I think that American opera companies and uh, the kinds of foundations like the Mellon Foundation that supports uh, this kind of work so generously have really stepped up um, and uh, and they're also now, they're training programs like American Lyric Theater, where I teach, uh, which is a fellowship program for emerging composers and librettists. Uh, it's been going on for about 10 years now. And we give, you know, a very rigorous full-time three-year training program for um, composers and librettists of opera. So all of the confluence of all of those elements, the support, um, the uh, Craving, I think the more the public sees of these things, really great stuff like um, the operas that I mentioned and, and like Dead Man Walking or um, Margaret Garner and things like, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, that there's really a desire uh, for more. The audiences really respond to this stuff. The future is bright. Yeah, it is. It is. But one thing I, I want to say in my teaching um, of composers and librettists, one thing I'm very mindful of is uh, that all of their tools, everything in their toolbox, pretty much, except for maybe electronics, is the same toolbox that Monteverdi or Mozart or Verdi had. And so I teach them that stuff. I, I teach them standard rep because there's no problem that they're going to encounter as composers and, and librettists of lyric theater that those those folks didn't encounter. You know, Take the how many, how few lines are they in the aria, the first aria for the Countess and the Marriage of Figaro, Borgia Moore? Oh, yeah. Eight lines, right. maybe. Sure. And in those two and a half minutes, you know her entire oh, yeah. life. Absolutely. It, it's so, yeah, it's like like a Hirschfeld drawing in just a few strokes, you know, it's her character is absolutely captured. Well, it's like some wag once said when there was some uh, some uh, debate about contemporary music, there's still a lot to be said in C major. <laughs> and there is. There <laughs> is. But but even, you know, uh, things that aren't in C major, there's there's so much out there. Well, in teaching young composers, you 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 expose them to the classics, mm -hmm. you make certain that they are aware of their past. Because their future can learn a lot from the from the not just the concision but the the incredible imagination of the yeah. composers who went before them and the craft you mm -hmm. know the the way the tools the craft all of that and and also uh, as a way of of keeping that repertory alive you know because we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater yeah. just because we have all these wonderful new operas it's really important 
to keep for companies to keep presenting them in kind of a dialogue with what's new and 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 all of that. And uh, well, as we're fond of saying, train singers in that way too. They should be learning the standard rep and also learning the techniques for uh, newer rep. And, and nowadays, I think young singers get many of their first professional opportunities uh, by. Uh, singing new music, Absolutely. workshopping, just like you do here at, uh, at Opera Fusion with the collaboration with um, CCM, where the casts for, for the workshops that we do at Opera Fusion are almost entirely uh, comprised of, um, of CCM students who are really extraordinary. And you've got, you know, Robin Guarino there who runs the program and your Marcus Kuschler. Uh, bringing together Cincinnati Opera and and CCM in this wonderful way that's a win-win for everybody. We're helping to make the future bright ourselves. Yes. Corey, thank you so much. We end every one of our podcasts by asking a sort of a litmus test set of <laughs> questions to everybody so our listeners can understand that everybody has to eat breakfast. So <laughs> what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I had a faye non-fat Greek yogurt. That's all? <laughs> That's all. Because How very I'll tell you why, because there you. wasn't much in the fridge this morning. That was the problem. <laughs> it's not, not that I was uh, interested in being so austere, but that's kind of what that's there what was. was. The and green tea. <laughs> what books are you reading right now? Well, <laughs> funny you should ask. Um, I'm actually reading uh, The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Suetonius uh, because that Suetonius was actually the personal secretary of Hadrian, but he wrote this book about the lives of the Caesars uh, from the first one, Julius Caesar, up till Hadrian. So it's sort of, uh, and it goes through Nero, which of course we deal with in Popeia. So it's kind of a whole continuum of all the things I, I'm, all the, the Roman worlds I'm living in right now. And that, and I'm also, uh, as I suppose, a, a a balance. I'm reading One Dharma by Joseph Goldstein. Wow. Um, any television programs you watch with any regularity? Oh, yes. Well. One in particular? Rachel Maddow. <laughs> Another MSNBC fan. <laughs> yes, yes. And also, I have to do a shout out for um, Law & Order SVU, Maris Mariska Hargitay. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you find one app in particular on your phone to be useful and helpful? Oh, gosh. Well, I would probably have to say Google Maps because I'm, you know, I'm just kind of all over the map. You know, I find myself in different cities and different countries all the time, and I don't know where the heck I am. So Google Maps is really a lifesaver. Um, you visited Cincinnati a lot over the years, mm -hmm. and you're going to be back again this summer. Um, do you have already a favorite Cincinnati restaurant or a tradition that you've grown to be fond of oh. when you come to Cincinnati? Well, um, you know, I would have to say uh, Grater's ice cream. <laughs> I'm ashamed almost to say, oh, but no. it's pretty good stuff. And, My you ultimate know, comfort food. There's a lot of good ice cream in a lot of places, but there's something about Grater's. I don't know what it is, but I'm always happy to be back in Cincinnati. Um, either the best or the worst piece of advice you've ever received. Oh, gosh. That's rough. That's rough. I really don't know. Don't take any wooden nickels. I don't know. <laughs> um, a favorite singer outside of the world of opera? Oh, well, of course, Rufus Wainwright. <laughs> Who else? Fair enough. And last but not least, 
Do you single out one person in particular as a really important mentor in your growing up in this profession or just growing up, yeah. period? Well, I've had, um, you know, I've been really fortunate to have a, a number of, of figures who I really cherish as mentors who guided me and gave me opportunities and taught me a lot. But if I was going to choose uh, just one, it, I think it would have to be my maternal grandparents because it was my grandfather's recordings of Mario Lanza that I stumbled upon that got me into this whole thing. And it was my grandmother who lived much longer than he did, who really, she was a great music lover. And she was the one who more than anybody else encouraged my musical ambitions. She um, thought it was absolutely great that this was my passion and she just encouraged it. Thank you so much, Corey. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's been really fun, Evans. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>